Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Brad Kearns here, host of the Primal Endurance Online Mastery Course. It's finally launched. We're so excited to share it with you. Let's hear what Lindsay Taylor has to say about it. Be on the lookout for upcoming announcements about the Primal Endurance Mastery Course that we will be releasing very soon. I just had a chance to preview it, and it is going to be so rad, you guys. And I'm not just saying that because I am one of the featured experts. I am really excited about it. Brad did an amazing job with this. It's going to be such a great resource for people who want to dive really deep into the concepts covered in the Primal Endurance book and in the podcast. It's really amazing, you guys. I'm super stoked about it. Primal Endurance Podcast, host Brad Kearns here. And as we wind on down the road, there was a lady we all know. All right. Oh my gosh, why am I picking that music? Because we're doing an old person show. We're going to do a couple of them. By popular demand from the many specific questions that come from older athletes. Um, The first one I'm going to title Scaring the Crap Out of Old People by Brad Kearns. We'll talk about some of the cardiac disease risk factors and health disease risk factors when you're doing extreme endurance training, especially as an old person who doesn't have that reserve Uh, like a younger person does, and maybe just rethinking goals in a big picture manner to find out what's most appropriate for your age, your lifestyle circumstances, before we just plunge into uh, tips and tricks and hacks for old people to go faster, okay? And then uh, I'll also address these interesting, specific questions from older athletes uh, to uh, kind of uh, provide a nice package of material. So um, this one, we'll start out with Uh, my admonition to really sit back and consider your purpose for pursuing these endurance goals and how they sync with your other goals, especially if you have goals of longevity, uh, preserving your health as you pursue fitness and fun stuff like that. And from my personal perspective, uh, you know I was a professional competitor on the triathlon circuit for Uh, nine years during my youth from ages 21 to 30. And during that time frame, I wasn't really concerned with the concept of longevity. I didn't have any perspective that what I was doing might even be at odds with uh, my future goals that were becoming more and more uh, calibrated toward longevity rather than uh, performance. Because during that time, I was giving my heart and soul to the sport of triathlon and trying to go as fast as I could and taking all those... um, uh, liberties with your health when you're at the elite level as an athlete and um, you're, you're trying to get the most out of your body. It's not always in agreement with your health. You try as hard as you can, but there's always a price to pay when you're trying to improve your Olympic distance racing time from 149 to 146.30. You know, it's a ridiculous type of uh, incremental improvement that requires a lot of uh, risk-taking with your health, with your musculoskeletal system, and you're always pushing the very edge of performance 
in a way that's um, definitely not aligned with health. I mean, just impossible to conclude that. So once I kind of woke up, got out of my main competitive phase, left the professional circuit, I realized that it was so important to not only stay in shape, but also to promote my health and to never do anything stupid, silly, uh, ill-advised that would compromise my health. So (laughs) I think you know, taking that uh, weekly seven-hour long bike ride down to two and a half was probably a big thumbs up in favor of long-term sensibilities and all those kind of things. Um, Secondly, the other reflection that I had uh, as I exited the sport and started to look at um, life ahead was that it's very, very important to have, to preserve that uh, passion and that competitive intensity for life in whatever your chosen goal is. So even though I was retired from the professional triathlon circuit, I immediately set my sights on uh, different types of athletic goals. I remember transitioning right into uh, my desire to throw down some ultramarathon runs and participate in the Western States 100-mile endurance run, the granddaddy of all the ultramarathons. It's been going on since the 70s, and it happens to um, finish right there in my hometown where I trained for triathlons for many years. So I was part of the Western States culture, whether I liked it or not. I'd watch the race every year. I'd go out on the trails and see these guys, buddies of mine, whoever, in the middle of the night. Um, I'd let people shower at my house, which was a mile from the finish line, that kind of thing. So I'm like, hey, might as well do this because it really is, um, it's an extreme event. But the concept of crossing the Sierras on foot in a single day and hearkening back to our ancestors and the explorers and the Lewis and Clark thing. It's a very romantic event, and it is an amazing accomplishment to think and look back over. I mean, when you get to Auburn, you're looking across the western slope of the Sierras, and you can see the highest peaks that frame Lake Tahoe, so you can kind of see what you've accomplished. And I thought, you know, this would be pretty wild. I had no idea what I was in for, and I have so much respect for ultramarathon 100-mile runners because it is an amazing athletic accomplishment especially uh, from the mental, the psychological standpoint of that type of endurance in the mind, not only to to train properly, but to get out there on race day. And we're talking about a 24-hour race. If you're lucky, that's the goal is to run it in 24 hours. And so that's, that's endurance. I mean, I had no concept of that because my longest workouts were, you know, lasting seven or eight hours and my competitive events were lasting under two hours. So changing that mindset uh, was a little bit of a struggle for me. I remember going out really hard in the preparatory events, the 50K run in Cool. It's called Way Too Cool, very popular, biggest one in the country. And then the American River 50-mile run, the traditional preparatory race in the Sacramento area for Western States runners. And, oh my gosh, I was in the top 20 in Cool, running with the elite guys and chit-chatting on the trail until I got to about mile 26. Imagine that, the marathon mark. And they're like, oh, you're doing great. Only five more miles to go. And my legs wanted to go like five more feet. So I remember getting passed by droves of people and humbled at the finish line with my finisher medal. Um, I didn't learn my lesson in the 50-mile American River. Uh, I had a nice little marathon split there at the halfway point of 309, and then my finishing time was 8.28. So before we pause too long for you to do the math, we'll say that the wheels came off again uh, in the AR50. And at the finish line of that event, I realized I was in no condition to attempt a 100-mile race uh, two months hence. And so I didn't. I pulled out, and I was good with that and had way more respect for 
the people are finishing. I remember another neighbor of mine uh, was watching the race with me or talking about it after and calculating like the pace per mile to go 100 miles in 24 hours, but not really realizing the significance of the incredibly steep canyons. And, oh gosh, I don't know what the vertical is. Uh, Look it up, but it's like, um, you know, 25,000 feet of vertical change in that 100-mile run course. Of course, you drop 5,000 feet from the start elevation to the finish, but you are going up and down some monstrous canyons, 100-plus degree temperatures guaranteed in the summer, deep in these river canyons. And then when they're starting the run, they're at sub-freezing temperatures often in uh, June in the uh, at the top of the peaks uh, by Lake Tahoe, Squaw Valley. Um, and so I remember this person calculating like, well, you know, I know I can walk 15 minutes a mile because I do that on the bike trail. So I think I'll, I think I could do the race next year. It'd be no problem to walk a hundred miles. I'll just walk. I won't run. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. So props to those guys. Um, but the reason I'm rambling on with this story is that I had to recalibrate my fitness goals towards something compelling and passionate. And when I decided to kind of hang it up in terms of my ultra endurance efforts, I concluded that. I wasn't really a good match for the ultra, uh, the the ultra ideal athlete. The mentality required. I was a explosive triathlon racer who preferred Olympic distance and going fast and swimming and biking and running. So I started to look toward um, goals that were more aligned with my personality, my temperament, and also felt like um, kind of an extreme effort to take on when I was also trying to build a career and start a family and do all those fun things. Um, didn't really fit hand in hand with pushing your body to the extent required to be a 100-mile finisher. Um, fortunately, I transitioned over to um, dominating youth athletes in soccer, basketball, and track for a nice 10-year decade there where I coached my son and daughter through the early years, starting out when they're four years old in soccer and all the way up to high school, which is when any parent should let go say goodbye to their kid, let real coaches coach them and watch from the stands. So that was a really fun transition for me too. But during that time when I was coaching, I had a different athletic goal uh, in front of me, which was I wanted to be a participatory coach. I wanted to, you know, um, set an example and not be just a fat slob with a clipboard who used to be a triathlete. So I was highly motivated to kind of broaden my perspective of fitness so that I wouldn't come home from soccer practice with six-year-olds having a sore back or tight Achilles tendons. So that was a beautiful awakening where I started to integrate the primal style training principles of sprinting, strength training, things that I totally and embarrassingly negated during my triathlon career where every ounce of my energy was directed toward improving my uh, endurance in swimming, bicycling, and running. So I felt like my goals of dominating the youth athletes, and you guys think I'm kidding, but I really did want to be the best player on the team. Um, And I succeeded with that goal for many, many years until they started, uh, the kids started speaking in deeper voices and uh, getting eyeball to eyeball when we'd have conversations. And then I started to fall off from my MVP role. And that was another graceful transition. (laughs) And um, then I kind of went over to the stuff I talk about now. You maybe heard me talk about this exciting sport of speed golf, which combines the endurance component of running fast around a golf course and the skill of golf and also high jumping and sprinting, which I'm so passionate about. I've been doing faithfully for a good decade now uh, since coming into the primal movement and starting with the primal blueprint Uh, lifestyle with Mark Sisson in 2008. So uh, as I've aged, I've actually turned toward more explosive 
and more broad-based athletic competencies. I had a nice run in the adult basketball leagues of Auburn, where no one cared that I was a world-class triathlete, and I just a guy that they could uh, push around under the board. So I had to improve my dribbling skills and my shooting skills and my passing and my uh, conditioning in a different way than I'd ever experienced as a triathlete. And let me tell you, there's no shape like basketball shape. I could come into that gym having run my 30 miles that week and been, you know, an endurance machine for many, many years, right? Uh, been leading up to present moment. But one one uh, basketball game where you're asked to play full intensity defense and then sprint down the court and then jump in the air and uh, manage these disparate talents that you have to build to be a competent basketball player, there's nothing like it. It's an amazing level of fitness and so much respect to the NBA guys and the top players in college, because I don't think there's any athlete that's um, conditioned at that level where they have tremendous endurance to play 100 ball games a year. In the case of LeBron James, every year he's going to the finals, right? Um, and here's a guy who's you know, 6'8", 250 pounds, rock solid, but running up and down like an endurance athlete for 100 games per year, and then doing all the other explosive stuff that's so exciting to watch. It's you know a blend of all the disparate primal blueprint fitness principles and so it's a wonderful goal to pursue that just broadens your horizon so far beyond endurance and realizing that endurance is just a narrow sliver of what it really means to be fit. So the reason I'm talking at length about this subject is maybe there's some eye-opening that goes on here where if you are simply content to be able to finish your local half-marathon run, I'm going to say major congratulations to you because we're talking about an average population today, which is absolutely pathetic. And um, I know one stat that I've referenced a lot over the years is that the average American walks a total of 1.2 miles per week. And so that's about a quarter mile a day. If you add everything up from the parking lot to the elevator, you know, into the cubicle, parking at the very close space to the grocery store, walking a few aisles, coming home, it's pathetic how little we move in general, uh, general life. So if you do have that endurance component built up, which probably most listeners do, that's fantastic. But then I'm going to ask you, like I asked myself, can you hang in an eight-year-old soccer practice? Can you hang with the 12-year-olds during a one-hour basketball practice? How many pull-ups can you do? Can you do more than three? (laughs) I mean, you know, can we have these baseline standards that uh, represent competency? Uh, Is your back sore after you lift a few sandbags from Home Depot onto your driveway when it starts raining? All those kind of measurements that I realized I was absolutely pathetic at Even though I was a high-profile elite athlete, um, I looked like I had a um, a, you know a fit physique and was a picture of health and fitness from the outside. But my competency was very, very narrow. So if you're getting older, if you've been in the endurance game for a while, there might be some considerations here where you might want to throw some different tricks into your uh, game. Uh, the obstacle course racing and that kind of fun stuff is really popular now because it does broaden out from just pure straight-ahead road racing or even triathlon being a straight-ahead sport. Um, but again, think bigger than uh, going from duathlon to triathlon. Think bigger than going from street marathon to uh, trail marathon because these are very, very narrowly focused endurance activities. And as I've talked about in so much length on so many shows, Um, they have a very high risk of compromising your health due to your participation in them. And that's the part that's uh, 
really concerning and disturbing that what we think we're doing in the name of health and longevity is actually having an opposing effect. Uh, You've heard me mention several times on the show the landmark TED Talk by Dr. James O'Keefe titled Run for Your Life, but not too far and at a slow pace, something like that. You'll find it on YouTube uh, talking about the elevated cardiac disease risk factors seen in devoted endurance athletes and the concept that, and this is going back to aerobics, Dr. Kenneth Cooper in the 60s has been touting this for a long time, that you can max out your aerobic benefits, your cardiovascular disease protection benefits from being cardiovascularly fit. You can max these out in only a couple hours of total accumulated uh, aerobic exercise in a week's time. Um, Dr. O'Keefe said something like, you know, this equates to like 10 to 15 miles a week of running at a slow pace. And there you are in the A-plus category for cardiovascular fitness and disease protection benefits. Of course, we have that whole other element of uh, more frequent everyday movement, all the work from Katie Bowman that's in the Primal Endurance Online Mastery course, where we're talking about the difference between cardiovascular fitness and cardiovascular health. Um, And so that urgent need to just move more in daily life, I'm going to put that aside for a moment. And if we're talking about just your cardiovascular conditioning, you can max out those benefits, and then as you extend beyond this, uh, this threshold, you start to increase your risk factors for cardiovascular disease and damage. Um, we've talked about the alarming uh, increase, the alarming frequency of atrial fibrillation in serious endurance athletes who've been going at it for years and decades. And this is what happens here is the electrical signal is distorted because of inflammation and scarring caused by especially chronic patterns of endurance training, but years and years of accumulated endurance training, perhaps if you're even really careful, you're still going to have this heart that's been uh, stressed like a muscle. Uh, It gets inflamed, it gets scarred, um, it heals just like any other muscle. But if you get up and do it day after day after day, if you're in this kind of chronic pattern, or especially if you're in a sport that's low to no impact so that you don't have that natural buffer that runners enjoy, uh, whereby they can't go out there and run for three hours every day at an elevated heart rate because the stress of running, the pounding, is a natural uh, buffer to build in recovery time. Unlike swimmers or cyclists, there's an article uh, featuring the prominent cycling guru, uh, uh, technology guru, Uh, named Leonard Zinn, who came up with a serious heart problem and had to uh, completely reframe his approach to the sport, um, talking about how you can get your heart rate up and ride in that pack for years and decades as a recreational or an amateur uh, cycling competitor and do a lot of damage to your heart accordingly because the inflammation and scarring. And what happens with AFib is these uh, upper chambers of the heart, the atriums, they quiver and contract in an irregular and uncoordinated manner instead of contracting properly. Um, I'm throwing in a few sound bites that are quotes from the article on Velo News called Cycling to Extremes uh, that was featuring Leonard Zinn. There's also, if you pay attention and care about this, um, a, a number of stories, and a disturbing number of stories of high-level uh, accomplished endurance athletes that have come to misfortune with their hearts. Alberto Salazar being you know, the greatest U.S. runner of his time, um, now he's the most prominent coach possibly in the world for endurance runners, having coached uh, Mo Farah, uh, maybe the greatest uh, long-distance runner of all time, 
uh, winning these gold medals, uh, three-peating with the gold medals in the world championships in the 5,000, 10,000, and also being one of the top 10 all-time 1,500-meter runners. The, uh, the breadth of his uh, domination is absolutely stunning, coached by Salazar. And also Galen Rupp, who's ascending to be one of the great American runners, uh, maybe, maybe uh, at the all-time list there, uh, vying for that position. Uh, with his amazing performances in a very competitive modern running scene. Anyway, Salazar was jogging around at the Nike campus and collapsed and was uh, literally dead for 14 minutes with a heart attack before they revived him and brought him back. Um, Micah True, uh, Caballo Blanco, he was the one of the protagonists in the best-selling book Born to Run. Uh, he dropped dead during a training run, and so his legacy, uh, just like Jim Fix, the author who was credited with... Uh, helping to be a catalyst for the running boom in the 70s with his best-selling books, uh, The Complete uh, Runner's Training Log. Sorry if I butchered that title. Man, I used to have so many of those, I can't remember the exact title. Uh, But he dropped dead of a heart attack on a training run, and um, now we were caused to reflect on some of these dated and unhealthy notions like if the furnace is hot enough, uh, any fuel will burn, and things like that, connecting the importance of healthy eating. So we know a lot about healthy eating from primal endurance, primal blueprint approach, and then we have to put this other piece together, maybe educate yourself a little bit by watching Dr. O'Keefe's TED Talk or searching for that article, uh, One Running Shoe in the Grave. It was in the Wall Street Journal. Um, Running on Empty is an article published on Outside Magazine Online about the alarming incidents of uh, elite-level ultra-runners winning races across the globe, and then crashing and burning and bombing out like nobody's business due to the hormonal burnout that causes from overtraining. So again, we're talking about uh, old guys on this show here, and I wanted to put in a few scare tactics to talk about our delicate heart and how important it is to keep that thing ticking for um, a long time. Um, And drawing a conclusion here, saying that maybe this crazy endurance stuff that is the domain of the younger, stronger human, you might want to recalibrate and dial back, for example, your competitive distance as you age. So maybe you did do uh, Ironman uh, distance triathlons in your 30s decade or your 40s decade, and now you're facing a future and you're thinking, oh, okay, uh, what's next? Should I keep doing the same old race every year? Or perhaps you could completely recalibrate and become an Olympic distance specialist and feel the, the joy and the pleasure of pursuing an alternative goal that involves speed and explosiveness and other attributes that are really negated when you're going ultra, ultra long distance. Um, the good thing about that is that um, we have a tendency to lose that uh, explosiveness, that speed as we age at a more uh, accelerated manner than we do losing our aerobic conditioning. Uh, case in point, you see the uh, aging aerobic athletes still competing uh, at world level. So Mark Allen, Craig Alexander, guys who won the Hawaii Ironman at 38 years old, I think they were close in age for going for that old man record, but um, that's pretty amazing to be on top of the world at 38. Mark Allen's case, I think he had his fastest time uh, when he was his oldest and last Ironman race. So um, you can continue to improve and excel as an aerobic endurance athlete, Dr. Maffetone talks about how aerobic conditioning builds year after year after year, so you don't have to worry about slowing down. But again, in the explosive sports, you don't see a lot of guys in their 40s uh, playing hoops in the NBA. Even Allen Iverson had to move on at some point. Kobe Bryant, the rest of them. 
So if you try to stimulate those different um, energy pathways and developmental training goals, um, these can contribute to longevity by keeping a little spring in your step and a little explosiveness and preserving a little more muscle mass if you're doing something that's more demanding like uh, let's say climbing the walls for your obstacle course racing or going out on a limb and doing some crazy stuff like trying to high jump at an advanced stage or trying to uh, you know coach youth sports players and be a participatory coach. So there's a little plug for diversifying your fitness goals. And of course, my personal enthusiasm is relevant here. And if you're not into it and you disagree, or you're maybe like one of these former NFL players who's turning toward endurance sports, there's so many of them. It's kind of cool. Like Heinz Ward finished the Ironman. He was coached by Paul Newby Frazier, the great Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver, Super Bowl MVP. And you just keep seeing these names pop up of former uh, professional, you know, major league team sport athletes in whatever sport. I've heard about some baseball guys going. There was some guy that came out and did um, Western States 100 miler. And I think he was a baseball player and he was a buddy of Lance Armstrong's and Lance was pacing him. And so um, if you've already been there and done that on that high level uh, team sport, explosive sport, and now you're content to plod along and have this wonderful balance between uh, the sedentary forces of modern life and getting out there on the trail for three hours, that's great. I just want to definitely put that plug in for the cardiac disease risk factors and the extreme importance of avoiding anything that smells like a chronic pattern when you are at the advanced age. Let's put like a, a over 50 qualifier on there because things really start to, um, you, you start to notice more distinctly uh, the negative effects of making mistakes in training. Uh, I remember when I was in, in my triathlon years, uh, in my 20s, um, you know, you could get yourself into a pretty deep overtraining hole and then rest for a few days and pull out of it or a week or something. Um, and the same thing today would probably kill me, literally. I mean, it could put me in the hospital with, um, you know, strange health conditions that might not be uh, validated by mainstream medicine, but could probably be, be blamed on extreme training patterns. And I put that little mention in on a recent show about my bout with uh, a burst appendix and the emergency surgeries, uh, emergency surgery and then uh, complications and follow-up surgeries on my kidneys in 2015, all coming coincidentally, not coincidentally, I'm just kidding, all coming on the heels of a period of time where I identified, I put myself into an overtraining spiral by uh, distinctly accelerating my overall training volume in running, trying to get competent at speed golf. So I was putting in a lot of miles. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, after many years of just a more moderate approach to uh, cardiovascular training, running, and I was doing them that uh, at a heart rate that was elevated above my maximum aerobic heart rate. So got deep into the analysis and study of this and came to the conclusion that Dr. Phil Maffetone's 180 minus age equals aerobic maximum heart rate, 180 minus age and beats per minute. Um, that's the point where maximum aerobic benefits occur. And that's the point that you really, really want to respect as an older athlete. And some of the questions that I'll address in the next show are coming from people saying, hey, can I add five beats because I'm old and I'm in good shape? And maybe the answer is yes. There's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of support for that. In other words, if you take this 180 minus age to the extreme, and you have, let's say, a fit 70-year-old uh, asking that person to train at 110, they could probably get away with a 120 just because um, 
their heart is still working strong and still has a pretty high max heart rate. Uh, for example, the way I got myself into trouble with my calculation was I was going off my known max heart rate of 190, or I'd say at least 190, because I saw it on the watch during sprint workouts uh, routinely. And so if you go 75% or 77% of max, like a lot of endurance athletes are asked to do to calculate their aerobic maximum, uh, they call it ventilatory threshold and correlate it with 77% of max. That for me is up there in the 140s. And that's far too high. If I'm 50 years old, I'm taking 180 minus age and 130 really is my sensible and healthy aerobic training rate. So we want to stick with that 180 minus age, even as we get old. Maybe if you're over 60, you can think about adding 5, 10 beats back. If you've had great success, lack of injury, illness, burnout, things like that. So that's the first emphatic lesson here is if you're going to go long and you're old, do it with your aerobic max. Don't screw around like a 20-year-old. <laughs> okay. I also want to read some from the excellent Velo News article in hopes that it will pique your interest and spell it P-I-Q-U-E, okay? Okay. Pique your interest in reading the whole thing. Various forms of arrhythmia, that's the abnormal heart rhythms, uh, are where the electronics come in. They may have a genetic component, but they can also be influenced by stress and intense training. Arrhythmia is a generic label for a condition in which the heart rhythm is altered from its common pattern in various parts of the heart. These episodes can be more or less dangerous depending on their speed, how long they last, which part of the heart they affect. When we train intensively for an endurance event, several adaptations occur in our hearts. The most common is that resting heart rate goes down due to improved heart function. Many endurance athletes experience what they think is the sensation of their heart skipping a beat. Actually, this is most often due to premature beats, a premature ventricular contraction, PVC. If it originates in the ventricle, or a premature atrial contraction, PAC, if it originates in the atrium. Both these are quite common in well-trained athletes and often are not dangerous. Growth of endurance sports, it's grown like crazy. Licensed cyclists and triathletes have gone amazingly high numbers in the last 20 years. There's been an increase in interest in the potential adverse acute effects of long and intense training and racing on the heart. Endurance athletes endure fluid shifts, changes in pH and electrolytes, and fluctuations in blood pressure. Their atria are exposed to chronic volume and pressure overload. The athlete's heart lurches from extreme to extreme, from spikes approaching 200 beats a minute to long periods of ultra-low resting heart rates below 60, a condition called bradycardia. That's when you're highly trained and you have a lower resting heart rate because you can pump more blood per stroke. You don't need as many beats, often seen as a benefit. That's me talking. Then back to the article. Long-term endurance exercise results in a five-fold increase in the risk of developing atrial fibrillation. Over decades of exertion, the myocardial cells of the heart begin to simply fall apart and you're left with an unhealthy ticker, or so these new studies suggest. When you're 20 or even 30, this can lead to acute reversible injuries, temporary damage that can be relieved with correct rest. In a 50-year-old, repeated hard doses of the sport you love, the rides you cherish, since complete recovery doesn't occur as efficiently, could be leading to accelerated aging or hypertrophy in layman's terms, a stiff muscle in your chest. That probably wasn't what you were looking for when you bought your last bike. And then at the end of the article, Dr. John Mandrola, who's a big figure in this game, answers some Q&A, and I'm just throwing out some excerpts, so please read the whole article. 
Um, I th- especially like that uh, plug for old people where, yeah, you don't recover as well, which means you got to downscale everything. You have to expand your recovery times. And a lot of endurance athletes like me are used to these patterns. We have the familiar patterns of stress and rest from our youth. And when we try to apply those to present day, uh, and I'm really a big fan of ignoring the aging process and not giving an inch to a younger player on the court or on the uh, competitive arena, but you do have to problem solve efficiently and realize that you're not uh, the same condition as you once were in terms of important things like recovery. Doesn't necessarily mean that you can't go just as well or perform just as well. Um, I love to uh, tout the fact that my high jump has improved as I got older uh, from when I was a little high school wimpy runner guy, and I still loved high jumping, and my best clearance was like five feet, so that put me as a pretty good girl on the varsity team. Not so much uh, on the guy part, but I still enjoyed practicing and especially practicing with the girls after practice when we ran around the track until we puked in the uh, endurance training. But as I uh, entered into my 40s and regained my passion for the high jump. I improved my height uh, from jumping right back into it at age 40. I cleared five feet and I was elated to match my high school total uh, from a couple decades prior. But then with more practice, more explosive training, uh, weighted squats in the gym, primal essential movements, things like that, um, I was able to clear over a succession of years, even as I got older, uh, 5'2", 5'4", my best at 5'6", coming a few years ago, and 5'5", five, five, even last year at the age of 51. Don't ask me about this year because I've had too many injuries, uh, sprinting too much, maybe not recovering all the way, and then doing another sprint workout. So back to the article and the importance of recalibrating your recovery time due to your uh, age. So Dr. Mandrola says, atrial fibrillation, this is about what are the symptoms, what should I be watching out for? Atrial fibrillation begins as premature beats, as just shorter periods of irregularity, and you feel something in the heart. If you're an endurance athlete and you get those warning signs, that's when it's time to start thinking about going in and getting your heart looked at. If you're feeling stuff like skips or jumps of your heart rhythm, you don't really know if it's VTAC or atrial fibrillation. The majority of the time, those are not dangerous or life-threatening, but it's time to get looked at and at least raise your hand and say, okay, what is this? Oh my goodness, maybe more than you were expecting when you tuned into the show and thought you were going to get some tips and tricks to speed recovery for old guys. And I know there's entire books out there on the shelves or on Amazon saying how to go fast after 40 or after 50. And all that stuff's great and well thought out, but I like to take a few steps back and say, look, maybe we should pursue um, a shorter distance or a less difficult event and just try to be competent within these parameters of uh, whatever age and also whatever time and energy you have to devote to training with respect to the other stress factors in your life. All right. How's that? Thanks for listening. Food for thought. We'll get into some Q&A next time. Um, And for all those older athletes out there, we'll go out with some familiar music, huh? Hi folks, Mark Sisson here, and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of 
primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching, but have been held back by worries, such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching, and we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.